know, one of our church members asked me this week, says, how, how, do you, uh, how do you define Presbyterianism? Someone asked, well, what is Presbyterianism? And, you know, there's a lot of different answers you could give based on uh, somebody's knowledge of church history, church government, and so forth. But for me, at the heart of being Presbyterian is being whole counsel of God people. And I'm not saying that Presbyterians are exclusively the only ones doing that, but at the heart of, of our movement and our denomination is that we want the Word of God to speak into every aspect of our lives, and not just the parts we like, or the parts that culture likes, or the parts that the minister thinks you'll like, and therefore you won't be mad at me if I say them, but we preach the whole counsel of God. And that's a major reason why we're doing this series, Walk Through the Bible, Introduction to the Holy Scriptures, book by book, because every book and every word that God has given is important. There is, Paul said, written down for our, our instruction and for our example, that we might learn not, how not to sin like they did. And as we've seen in the Old Testament, I mean, what's the dominant the dominant doctrine, at least in respect to man, in the Old Testament, is total depravity. It's total depravity. Time and time again, can man do it? If we have the right judge, can we save ourselves? No. If we have the right king, can we save it? No. If we had our own land and space where only us would dwell, only the people of God, would it be perfect? No. And we have seen, as we've worked through the historical books, how Israel sinned against God over and over and over again, and how God vomited them out of the land. And if you remember from the book of Kings, for example, the writer of Kings was showing that all of that was according to God's stated purpose from Deuteronomy, that choose life and you will live. If you reject me, you will die. And we've seen that. And now we come to Lamentations, which is all about grieving the destruction of the temple and the expulsion of God's people from the land of promise. It's very difficult to put ourselves in the shoes of the, uh, of the Israelites experiencing both first the Assyrian nation that came and wiped out the northern ten tribes, which are often referred to as Israel in the prophets, and then the southern kingdom, which is often referred to as Judah, but also included Simeon and Benjamin as well, how they were expelled from the land in 586 B.C. But put yourselves in the shoes of those in Jerusalem who for multiple years are surrounded by the fiercest and most savage army on the planet. Babylon for multiple years, was surrounding Jerusalem and laying siege to it. And those in Jerusalem, they're running out of food. They're running out of provisions. They are, even at times, eating their own dead to survive, their own dung. I mean, what... What experience do we have today that could even help us come close to understanding the situation that they were in? And the message of Lamentations is that it was God who did it. And what we're going to learn today uh, as we work through Lamentations 
as biblical grief is not merely trying to find a a band-aid we can put over our wound. But biblical grief is coming to terms with God who is sovereign not only over our prosperity, but also our suffering. And that there is no healing without coming to terms with that reality. That's going to be just one of the things we're going to learn along the way. Lamentations comes to us as a national eulogy. You know, a eulogy is something you give at a, at a funeral when you talk about a person's life. Uh, in the Western context, usually those eulogies are turned positively. We try to remember the good things about the person that died. But in the ancient Near East, a eulogy was not merely saying the good things, but it was lamenting and grieving over the sorrow of the occasion. I think grieving is something that we as Westerners don't always do very well, especially in the church. I don't think we know how to grieve very well. So this is a corporate grieving. This book is, and it was used that way even in the history of, uh, of Judaism. They would celebrate, they would read the book of Lamentations when they would uh, celebrate and remember the destruction of the temple, both in 586, which is the context here, but also AD 70, when the Roman Empire destroyed the temple the second time and sacked Jerusalem. And in the history of the church, this has been used during the Passion Week as well to reflect on the death of Christ. So this, this book, not just in, uh, in the context in the Bible, but throughout the history of God's people, has been used as a national or corporate lament, a eulogy. And we're going to see it uh, that way this morning. I want to point out a few uh, notes on the structure And then we're going to dive into the big message of the book. If you turn to page 7 of your worship folder, you will, uh, I want to point out a few things on the literary structure and outline. Uh, If you look down at the literary structure, you see here uh, what I've written, that uh, Lamentations has a chiastic macro structure that organizes the five poems. If you look at the outline below, you'll see there's five points. Those are five individual poems that comprise the whole book. Conveniently, they're one chapter each, as we have in our uh, numerology, or the versification, I should say, of the, the book of Lamentations. And each of those is its own poem, but the, they've been organized in such a way that they form a chiasm. Remember, a chiasm is that like envelope structure where the the beginning and the end relate to one another, the middle portions relate to one another, no matter how many levels of the chiasm there are, and the middle is the emphasis. And what we see with this chiastic structure is uh, point one and point five deal with the desolation of Jerusalem and then the pleading for the restoration of Jerusalem. So those are paired together. And then Chapter 2 and chapter 4, or part 2 and part 4, those deal with the anger and the wrath of the Lord. And they describe how the Lord has brought this and what the wrath of the Lord looked like. And then the middle section is hope. And there we find a focus on the Lord's 
Hesed. So I have it written for you in the bulletin. Hesed is this Hebrew word that is very difficult to translate. That uh, The ESV translates it as steadfast love, but it also could be understood as his covenant faithfulness or covenant love. It ha- it's a covenantal word. And so the heart of, in the heart of this grief is the focus on hope based on God's hesed. So the reason I give you these structures is that so when you're studying the Bible for yourself, I hope this can be a guide to kind of help you see how a book emphasizes different theological truths based on how the book is structured, even as an author today structures their table of contents deliberately in a way to make particular emphases or to organize particular topics uh, or thoughts. So I, I'll leave that there for you to study uh, at greater detail. Uh, well, actually, one other thing I want to say on the structure. Uh, the first four chapters are also alphabetical acrostics. Uh, so what, an acrostic is, is something that goes in order. So here, the, the first line of each verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So there's 22 verses. They're like parallel points. In uh, chapter 1, there's 22 verses in chapter 2. Chapter 3, there's 66. It's a triple acrostic. So if you read the Hebrew text, verse 1, there's, well, there, it's not just verse 1, but the first three lines, I should say, are all Aleph, which is the A, their A. So it goes Aleph, 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 Bet, 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 Gimel, 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 Dalet, Dalet, Dalet. I don't expect you to know the Hebrew alphabet, but that's how it goes. So there's a very deliberate structure to the Book of Lamentations that we as, uh, re- whether you're reading in English or Norwegian or another language, you're probably not going to be able to see it. So everyone learn Hebrew, but praise God for translations that we can understand in our native tongues, of course. But it can be helpful there to just kind of be aware of those things because those are emphases. One commentator suggested that these uh, alphabetic acrostics are meant to imply the completeness of God's judgment on Jerusalem. The, the exhaustive nature of it from A to Z, as it were. Yeah. Well, let's dive in then to Lamentations as a national eulogy. You know, the challenge to preach one message on each book is to really get to the heart of the, the, heart of the text. And you can preach the message of God's word at any level. You can fly the plane at any level as long as you are emphasizing the main point of the text. And I hope that I am able to do that this morning with Lamentations. And what we're going to see first from Lamentations is that the wrath of God against sinners is terrible. The wrath of God against sinners is terrible. And I use the word terrible to mean full of terror, its original language. The English language has been perverted quite a bit. A terrible noun just means like bad, like he did a terrible job of that. But the original meaning of terrible means full of terror. And the wrath of God against sinners is terrible. We see in Lamentations at the outset how Lady Jerusalem is left desolate. We read, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who is great among the nations. 
She who is a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her, and all her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. So Jerusalem, who was once this glorious city, the city of Solomon, the city of riches and success, has now been leveled and desolate. After the Babylonians swept through, there was nothing left but the poorest of the poor in the land. The, they came, women were raped, children were slaughtered, the, the nobles and leaders were executed or drug off. It was hell itself. And here, Lady Jerusalem is, des- is described like a low, lowly widow. Who, all her children, her husband, has is, is left her, and she's left desolate. Jerusalem, as you read Lamentations, is personified a lot so that the speaker is as if it were Jerusalem speaking for what has happened to her. So that's a key to understanding as you read Lamentations. She's become a widow She's become a slave. She was a princess and now is a slave. Uh, We have an allusion in in chapter 1, verse 2, to her whoring, to use the the language of the prophets, her going to the false gods and, uh, and her people worshiping on the hills and committing horrible abominations in the sight of God. He says that now she weeps and among all of her lovers, all these foreign, there's no one to comfort her. And her friends have betrayed her and have become her enemies. Moreover, her temple has been violated. We read in chapter 1, verse 10, The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregations. There was no more abominable act than to enter into the Holy Holies in an unworthy manner. And both in 586 as well as in 8070, you have pagan kings entering the Holy of Holies, violating the most precious and sacred part of Jerusalem. In Lamentations, it's described as her womanhood itself. So it's to to conjure up for us this just heinous act that has happened. The very rape of Jerusalem. Not only has this happened, but we read about her people groaning with hunger. Verse 11, all her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. (coughs) Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. Let me read that again. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. 
unimaginable. But then in verse 15, we learn that it was the Lord who did it. Verse 115, the Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. So again, this is personified Jerusalem speaking. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. And as we go on in Lamentations, we learn that the Lord has become like an enemy and his wrath is terrible. In chapter 2, we go on, How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. And the writer goes on to talk about how the Lord swallowed them up without mercy, how he's broken down their strongholds, how he's cut them down in fierce anger, how he's burned them like a flaming fire consuming all around, how he's bent his bow like an enemy, and how he's killed all those who were delightful in Jerusalem's eyes. The writer says in verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He says, to the Lord, you summoned as if to a festival day my tears on every side and on the day of the anger of the Lord. No one escaped or survived those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. What we are learning here from Lamentations is that though a wicked pagan empire is decimating God's people, it was the Lord who used them to such a degree that in Lamentations, Babylon is not even mentioned. Only Yahweh is mentioned as the one bringing upon the calamity on his people. And as we reflect broader on the revelation of Scripture, we know that a worse punishment awaits the nations that reject him today. Revelation 19.15, from his mouth, speaking of Christ, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And using the words of lamentation, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. So that as we reflect more broadly on Lamentations, there is not merely a judgment that has happened on God's people in 586. But there is a judgment that is coming to all nations in that Jesus, as the divine warrior, will bring that to pass. And John in Revelation alludes to the language of, Levitic, uh, of uh, Lamentations using that treading of the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And we must know, and I don't know the state of each one of your souls, but you must know that there will come a day when all men shall be judged. And we read that in Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And of this judgment, friends, there is no escape. Jesus himself said as much in Matthew 25. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Did you know that the evil today bears witness to the reality of God's coming judgment? The, the evil that we see in the newspaper and the television screen in the workplace that frustrates us so much is itself evidence of God's coming judgment. And that Paul said in Romans 1, and he's, as he's writing to the Christians there in Rome, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And we see God's act of hand in preparing for this judgment. When Paul goes on, he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God is giving them up. This very act of seeing people being given over to these things is evidence of God's coming judgment. Paul goes on in verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You know, you see the rainbow flag flying today. God has given them the rainbow flag as a sign of their judgment. And of all those who rebel against God's law. Paul says God gave them over to these things. The increase of it is itself witness to God's coming judgment. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruless. Right? From the from the politician to the CEO, this is the playbook. Paul's going to go on to indict the Israelites, the Jews in Rome, and then bring it back on the Gentiles too to show how no one is righteous. But the very fact that these sins are being celebrated is not something where God is wringing in his hands and going, oh no, he's giving culture over to it. God is giving them up to it. Even as God gave the Jerusalem and Israel up to their own sins and long suffered under it. That's not God forgetting about it. It's God letting them fill up the iniquity of, their, of his wrath, of their cup of transgressions. 
And friends, each one of us, Christian or unchristian, will give an account. Paul tells us in Romans 14, for everyone, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And the writer of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For our God is a consuming fire. So both lamentations and wider biblical reflection show us that the wrath of God is terrible. It is complete. It is exact. It is merciless on its own, without protection that he gives. And that's what Lamentations is going to go on to show us. There is a way to escape the terror of God's coming judgment. So let's look at the second part of the message then. To escape the coming judgment, we must grieve and repent of our sins. To escape the coming judgment, we must grieve and repent of our sins. Again, lamentations. I really struggled with how to name this text. I'm happy with how I ended up naming the sermon. I think that's the main thing. But I wanted to name it Coming to Terms with God. But there's a temptation to generalize lamentations. But it really is about a specific historical event. So we need to make the main thing the main thing. Okay, but at a wider level, it is also a book that teaches us how to come to terms with God. That he's sovereign over the good and the bad in our lives. And that he will deal with our sins. But that the, there also is a means of escape. We have to come to terms but it's his means of escape. All roads don't lead to Rome. All roads don't lead to heaven. There is one name given among men by which we must be saved, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at Lamentations, we see in chapter 4, as an example, how Jerusalem laments her punishment. She says in chapter 4, 1, How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel. Like the ostriches in the wilderness, the tongue of the nursing infant stick to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her. We see that in this grieving process that grief is biblical. It is a biblical thing to grieve. You know, we come to church, and I've said this before, thinking, you know, you got to suit up or wear your, you kind of put your armor on. You put it, you know, you try to look, look good, look like your family's good, everything's perfect. But that's not, that's, hypocrisy, isn't it? And we need to learn how to grieve rightly, not just individually, but here corporately. 
grieve corporately together. But one thing that comes with grief, some people grieve as an excuse to deal with anything, to deal with their problems. But biblical grief also includes an admonition of guilt when there is sin involved. Not all suffering happens because of sin, uh, a.k.a. the book of Job, which we've looked at in this series. But biblical grief, where sin is involved, also turns to repentance. Jerusalem admits her guilt in chapter 1, verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. Again, an allusion to uh, sexual infidelity, which, which was the great illustration of Israel going to the pagan gods. They were committing adultery against God. And here they're admitting her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. And her leaders led the way in this sin. In chapter 4, we read, This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. And that the true people of God were being persecuted and butchered. The true prophets were being killed by the wicked false prophets and false leaders and wicked shepherds. But acknowledging all of this, Jerusalem does not curse God. And that's another distinction between biblical grief and unbiblical grief. For many, a child dies, a parent dies, something bad or horrific happens to themselves or something they witness. And they're like, I can't believe in God. God, you know, if God's going to do that, they reject God. But biblical grief does ne- it never curses God. Never. We read in, in chapter 3, verse 37, this acknowledgement, Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain a man about the punishment of his sins. So true biblical grief also acknowledges the rightness of their suffering. As the writer says, why should a living man complain a man about the punishment of his sins? And the fact of the matter is, whether something we did directly caused the suffering that we're experiencing, we as being in Adam brought sin and misery upon the world. So it's not as though suffering always happens to you because you did X or Y or Z, but because we live in a world of sin and misery and we are hearty contributors to that sin and misery. And we can't help it. Even as Christians, we are waging war with our sinful flesh, are we not? And so... Because that's the reality, why do we have a right to complain about it? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? So Jerusalem therefore calls for repentance in chapter 3, verse 40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord.
both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, biblical grief leads to repentance. Unbiblical grief leads to cursing God. And that's the difference. That's also why it is so scary when we give ourselves to murmuring and complaining. I mean, think about that. God rescued the Israelites from Egypt, from the most powerful empire in that time, delivered them, parted the seas, wiped out the army. They go into the desert. God provides what they need and they gripe about it. They gripe about it. You know, John Bunyan, a famous Puritan who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, talks about the absurdity of the Christian complaining on his way to heaven. He uses the illustration of a man uh, whose the wheel on his cart broke off. And and he's complaining, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. While he's supposed to be on his way to the kingdom to receive his inheritance. How absurd it is when we go about our days whining and griping. I mean, I, want to use, I won't. I want to use stronger words to express how absurd it is. Who are we to complain about the, about the discipline that comes upon us? Let us test and examine our ways and return to God. Coming to grips with the sovereignty of God is essential if you want to grow and be strong as a Christian. If you are honest about the scriptures, you cannot avoid the fact that it is from God that both good and bad come. And the hang-up for so many people is intellectual pride because they can't understand how God can be all-loving and all-good and all-just and yet let evil come upon us in the way that he does. But the Bible is crystal clear who is in charge of everything. And it is God. And any preacher or teacher that tells you otherwise is false. Or at best, disobedient to clear teachings of Scripture. And at the heart of grief and lamentations, and lamentations three, right at the heart of this book and of this structure, is that, who has, who has spoken and has not come to pass? Is it not from the Lord's hand that both good and bad come from his mouth? So why should we complain? You will not find healing. And I know each one of you, I don't know what each one of you's actual issues are, but I know you have issues because you're human and I'm human and I know I have issues. You will not find healing in whatever thing you are harboring in your heart, even if you can't admit you're harboring it against God, you will not find true healing until you lay yourselves at the feet of God's sovereignty and trust that even the evil that has befallen you is for good. There is no getting through the grief until you acknowledge that fact. And it is no accident that this doctrine is at the heart of the healing passage within Lamentations. There is no getting around the sovereignty of God and coming to terms with it if you want to be healed. 
And there's also no escape from the coming judgment without repentance. And as Jesus came on the scene, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, what was His opening line? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So let's turn to our third point then. To escape the coming judgment, we must put our hope in Christ. To escape the coming judgment, we must put our hope in Christ. Lamentation begs us to do biblical theology, and we're going to do that in this closing point. At the heart of lamentations in this chiastic structure that we talked about is the Lord's hesed, his covenant faithfulness. And we read that the Lord's covenant faithfulness, his hesed, is the hope for his people amid the darkest grief. 319, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That's the word hesed. That's how the the ESV translates it. The hesed of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He's saying this in the midst of the Lord's decimation of Jerusalem. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. At the end of the book, Lamentations pleads for this restoration that's based on this hesed, this restoration of the city of God. It says, But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us, O Lord, to yourself, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. It's like an adulterous woman pleading for her husband to take her back. Restore us that we may be restored unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. So Lamentations ends with a question. Unless, did he ultimately reject us? Will he restore us? And the answer to the question comes in the New Testament. Romans 11. God has not ultimately rejected his people. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I, am my, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And Paul's going to go on then in Romans 11 to deal with what was so confusing to Jews is Gentiles coming into the... Into the why, why are they... They're our enemy. And at the same time, they're dealing with the confusion of the Israelites that are rejecting Jesus. Well, if he's the Messiah, why are they rejecting him? 
Uh, What we learn in the New Testament is that the very act of destroying Israel as a nation in the Old Testament was to show mercy to the world. That very act that we read about, the horrific act in Lamentations, was to show mercy to the world. And Paul picks this theme up in Romans to show how God was extending grace to the Gentiles so that all Israel might be saved. And, and I've cited Ephesians to a number of times in this series, but we learn that, that the Lord has taken those who are without hope and without God and aliens and strangers to the promises have now been made citizens, fellow citizens of his nation, which is his church, his Jew-Gentile church. Ephesians 2, Paul says, God has made one new man in the place of two, thereby making peace. And God is making us, his Jew-Gentile church, the dwelling place of God by his spirit, the temple. But I want to end with this. God's covenant faithfulness to us comes through one man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the true temple. John says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus, as God, came to earth. And in part of his mission, as the true temple, he let himself be destroyed. The true temple was destroyed but not for his sins, like in 586, but for our sins. Jesus was laid low for the sins of his people. He took the greater spiritual punishment that was coming. And what did he say in John 2? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And his resurrection is our resurrection and our hope. His salvation is our salvation. His grace is our grace. The reason that we can be the temple is because he is the temple and has poured out the Spirit on us. And even as Lamentations ends begging for the destruction of their enemies, that temple will return as the divine warrior, not this time to deal with sin, but to destroy his and our enemies. Remember our confession that we confess, and this is why, to me, it's so important that we have a theological structure to the way that we think, and it has to be biblical, and that's Gideon's task to show the theology. But we confessed in question 26 about Christ How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And he is our provision. He is the one whom all of God's promises find their yes. He is the one who has given us peace with God. He is the one who has saved us from the coming wrath. 
Paul picks that theme up in Romans 5, 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? And so what happens then in close as we read Lamentations, not only do we see that his wrath is terrible, not only do we learn that to be saved from that wrath, we need to learn how to grieve and lament and repent. Not only that, but we need to put our faith in Jesus because he is the one who will protect us from the wrath to come. He will protect us because he is the resurrected temple. He is our divine warrior. So friends, not all suffering is because of sin directly, but all sin and misery we face is the result of sin. God is in control of all of it, and you will not find healing in those dark crevices of your heart and soul that linger to bitterness until you let the sovereignty of God in and you embrace his goodness and faithfulness to you in it. In all of this, friends, as we read Lamentations, this national eulogy, in Christ, it also for us becomes a national celebration. It's what we celebrate every time we come to the Lord's table, the one who is laid low for our sins and raised to new life. So even as we read about the darkest grief that God's people have experienced, right in the center is Hesed. It's Christ, the fulfiller of all the promises of God. So I pray for you and your spiritual well-being that you would find healing as you learn how to grieve rightly, grieve biblically, to embrace the goodness of God, even in the hardest experiences of your life. And find Jesus there, who is your hope, now and forever. And who will lead us to the new creation, where there are no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sin, world without end. Amen. Let's pray.